Well, hello. I think we're into autumn, well and truly this morning. Have you had a chance to say hello to each other? Do you want to have two minutes, or have you all done that already? Today, our theme's a little bit easier than last week. That wouldn't be difficult. (laughs) Our theme today is about God connecting with us through Jesus. It's all about lost and found. And in the all-together part, when the children are still with us, we're going to look at Paul's conversion. And then later on in the sermon, we're partly going to look at the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. I'm going to lead us now, as is usual at this point in our service, in a prayer of thanksgiving and confession. And as usual, I'll end inviting you to join me in saying together the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming near us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for his stories that teach us about you. You're the shepherd who prizes the lost sheep, the woman who finds her lost coin. Truly, Lord God, you reach out to all people and you're always reaching out to us, drawing us in, bringing us home. We wait on you this morning with love in our hearts, the love that is merely a response to the love that you first had for us. We confess that we sometimes forget our status, sometimes we're independent and worldly wise, and we forget that you're the one who sought us out like lost property which existed in the darkness until your light and your love shone upon us. Forgive us for our pride, Lord Jesus. Take us now, Heavenly Father, this morning and teach us more of your ways. May we become each day more like your Son, more able to reflect your Father heart of love to the world around us, your world, and to all those your children who are lost and who you long to come home to you. Hear us now. Dear Heavenly Father, as we pray together the prayer that you taught, your son taught his first disciples. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now we don't have a sung psalm this morning, but I thought we'd read a psalm together. It's Psalm 51, and you'll find it as hymn 676, if you'd care to turn it up, in the Baptist Praise and Worship book. This is a lovely psalm, and it was actually in the Roots Lectionary materials for this morning as one of the Old Testament lessons. I'm going to read the bits that are in light print, and if you'd care to join me, please, join me reading the bits that are in the dark print. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Amen. Now our readings for this morning. The first reading, the Old Testament reading, is from Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 to 14. The golden calf. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once, your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your face Turn your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he had planned to bring on his people. And then the New Testament reading from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10, the parable of the lost sheep. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, which one of you, having a hundred sheep, And losing one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
the parable of the lost coin. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbours, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Amen. My sermon title today is The Ultimate Connection, and I guess you'll know what connection I'm talking about now. Connection with our Heavenly Father. As Christians, we believe that that connection comes only through Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, who heralded the new covenant, a time of forgiveness of sin, the price paid once for all. Jesus, who opened up the possibility of us being able to live under grace, not under law. Jesus, whose work on the cross is a mystery that we probably will never fully fathom this side of eternity, but is what we celebrate every time we come around the Lord's table to celebrate communion. I'm following the pattern laid down for this month in the Roots Common Revised Lectionary Materials, and that's to look at an Old Testament passage, see the message that was proclaimed there, take it into the Gospel of Luke and see how Jesus, with his words, expanded that same message and then attempt to apply it to ourselves or at least offer ourselves the opportunity to understand more fully what God was saying through both these words. This morning we're looking at the nature of the God who is the ultimate connection that Jesus connects us with. The God by whom or from whom we were lost and by whom we are found. Lost and found by a God who is by nature dynamic, living and involved with human beings as much today as he was two millennia ago. Not getting that word out, millennia ago when Jesus walked on the face of this earth. As involved as he was with the people one and a half millennia even before that when it was the time the children of Israel were journeying out of Egypt to the promised land. Lost and found by a God who, through his Son, treats us regardless of what anyone has done with infinite grace and love. Lost and found by a God who is not unchangeable, he's not immovable, we can't predict him, but he's ultimately trustworthy, faithful, and the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lost and found by a God whose very nature is love. In the first letter of John, we're told quite simply, God is love. But let's go to our Old Testament passage for today. I'm at Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 to 14. What's described here and what Ken read to us just a few minutes ago was a dialogue between Moses and God. The placing of this dialogue is up Mount Sinai. But let's rewind the tape and go to the beginning of Exodus and see where the context of this dialogue was. What's up on the screen just now is what's called a wordle. I can't explain it to you, but they put all these words from my book 
into some sort of program and they come out showing the words that are used most often in the largest print. And here you can see from looking at this wordle that Exodus is all about the Lord and his people Israel and Moses, who he had sent along with his brother Aaron to lead the children of Israel out of their lostness in slavery to the pharaohs of Egypt, going towards Canaan, the land God had promised to their forefathers. These children had experienced incredible things happening in Egypt as God was releasing them, culminating in walking across dry land, walking across the Red Sea. They'd also witnessed the end of the Egyptian army when the waves rolled back, when they were pursuing them and then wiped out the Egyptian army behind them. But they were a group of grumblers, and they grumbled all the way. And as you go through the chapters of, Moses, uh, chapters of Exodus, you find how often they were grumbling at Moses. But he led them through the desert of Shur. He led them through the desert of Sin. And here they were. Now, there's some dispute as to where Mount Sinai was in those times. But on this map, which is the traditional route of the Exodus, Mount Sinai is there at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. So he'd got them here. They'd moaned that they hadn't had food, so God provided quail and manna. They'd moaned that they hadn't got anything fresh to drink, so God provided water from the rock. Moses had been given the law, and they had agreed that they were going to obey the law. In particular, they had agreed that they were going to obey all ten commandments, and they had acknowledged that Moses was going to be their intermediary with God. So here we are at the start of our passage. I love this picture, by the way. Guess what they were doing? They were murmuring again. Moses was up Mount Sinai, and he'd been there a long time, 40 days and 40 nights in particular. And the children of Israel were getting a bit bored waiting for him to come back down. So they decided that they would make a god for themselves. And quite surprisingly, Aaron suggested that they gather all their gold earrings and such like things together and make a golden calf. And they started worshipping him, worshipping it, in complete violation to the first and second commandments, which are, you'll only worship God and you won't make idols of silver and gold. Not only that, and I'm sorry, this is a bit of a fuzzy picture to look at, but they started reveling and dancing around it, having a festival, making sacrifices, And blasphemy of all blasphemies, saying that this was the God that had brought them out of Egypt. Not a good idea. So here we have Moses. He's still up Mount Sinai and God speaks to him. God's angry. He intended to send Moses back down to Moses' people, who Moses had brought out of Egypt. Gosh, what a human thing you can hear God saying there. They're yours. A bit like us saying, they're your children today. The Lord wanted to be left alone so his anger could burn against his people. He even said he might consume them. In his anger, he told Moses he would make him a great nation instead. So here we have an image of an extremely angry God who was prepared to go back on his covenant promise to his people because they'd broken the law that he'd instructed them about and they had agreed they were going to obey. Take a step back for a moment. To consider the wrath of God is something beyond our comprehension, isn't it? Maybe 
God is actually too small in our minds sometimes. We don't really grasp the nature of Almighty God, God whom we serve. Now, I'm not making a comment at all on the flooding that's in our news just now in Colorado and Mexico, but for my own self, the only way I can find some image that I can liken to what the wrath of God must be like is an angry sea. I was once at Ballantoy Harbour in Northern Ireland when there was a storm, and i just not seen anything like it. The waves were crashing. They were rolling over the harbour. They were creating foam. They were enormous, and it was downright frightening. The God we serve is not to be taken lightly. He is Almighty God. But here we have in our passage Moses. Now remember, Moses was the one after the burning bush incident that said, oh God, I can't speak to them. I've got, I'm slow of tongue. I'm not eloquent. And eventually God had to say to him, okay, I'll send you, but I'll get your brother Aaron to speak for you. So that was this same Moses. But with incredible courage, he stands up before a wrathful God. I think he gets 10 out of 10 for his plea and mitigation in this case. He should have been a lawyer. He asks God why his wrath is burning hot against his people that he, God, had brought out of Egypt by his mighty hand. He asks God, why should the Egyptians get the satisfaction of saying that God only brought his people out of Egypt into the wilderness to wipe them out, to wipe them off the face of the earth? Moses then has the nerve to suggest to God, when you change your mind about this, don't bring this disaster on your people. And finally, the clincher. Moses reminds God of his promises to Abram, Isaac, and Israel to multiply their descendants like the stars in the sky and to give them the promised land as their inheritance forever. What Moses was doing there was reminding God of who God was the Almighty who loved his people, who was faithful to all his promises, merciful to all that he had made. Psalm 30, verse 5 says this, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Back in Exodus, verse 14 ends our passage, and the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he had planned to bring on his people. It's like he said to Moses, you're quite right. It's not in my nature to wipe out my people. I loved, I love them despite what they may have done. What an incredible relationship, connection with God Moses had. He's a bit like Abraham who similarly made a plea for the people of Sodom in Genesis. What an incredible testimony both men had about their connection to God and what a testimony to us about the power of prayer. I think what we learn from this passage is that God can be angry, but his nature is to be faithful and merciful to people, his children, regardless of what they've done. I'm going to flip into the New Testament now, and I'm at Luke chapter 15, and I'm at verses 1 to 10. The passage opens with a group of sinners around the Lord Jesus. Sinners and tax collectors. They were the outcasts of society. Could it be that they were feeling acceptance by being around Jesus? The Pharisees and scribes were there too. And guess what they were doing? Murmuring. They were murmuring against Jesus, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. I like this picture. Can't you just see their angry, critical voices? 
I think Jesus was fully aware of his mixed audience. He was fully aware of what they may each be thinking. So he told two parables, twin parables, seemingly with a similar intent to help his listeners, regardless of which camp they were in, to understand the nature of his Father in heaven. First of all, he says to them, imagine you're a shepherd. Now it's very interesting that he used a shepherd. In first century Judea, the shepherds were the lowest of the low. They were the scum. Because of their constant work with animals, they couldn't go to the temple because they could never be ceremonially clean. They were not pure. Shepherds' work was very hard. They worked 24-7. They were out on hills like these, night and day, protecting their sheep against marauding wild animals. Interesting that if they were around Jerusalem, the sheep they were raising were probably being raised for temple sacrifice. At the Passover time, they needed thousands of lambs for the sacrifices that were used then. Interesting, isn't it, that at the first Christmas, the birth of the Saviour of the world, the Lamb of God was first revealed to shepherds. The heavenly choir sang out their good news to shepherds on the hills above Bethlehem. So back to our parable and Jesus using a shepherd to illustrate what he was trying to get across about the nature of his father. Jesus asks, which of them, being a shepherd and losing a single sheep from their flock of a hundred, wouldn't leave the 99 in the wilderness and go in search of the lost sheep? And once they find it, would they not carry it home on their shoulders? Interesting, it's a black sheep, isn't it? Carry it home on their shoulders, rejoicing and getting together with their neighbours and friends to celebrate that what was lost had been found. Jesus said similarly, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one repentant sinner than 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Then he uses his second parable. Interesting that this is also using as an illustration an outcast. He uses a woman. Women were non-persons in this society. Females had no status at this time. If you read the NRSV, we don't know the marital status of this woman, but some translations say she was a widow. Let me tell you about what it was like for women at this time. A man could not, a man could divorce a woman. A woman couldn't divorce a man. She wasn't able to do that. A woman couldn't survive unless she was married. If a man divorced a woman and didn't give her the certificate of divorce that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, she wouldn't be able to remarry without the risk of the first husband just on a whim saying, I want her back. So it was a kindness to give her a certificate of divorce so that she could remarry. If she couldn't remarry, she would be destitute. Jewish men at the time said in their prayers they thanked God that they hadn't been made a Gentile or a woman. So Jesus doesn't tell his audience to imagine that they're a woman, but he does something much more deep than that. He's using a woman as an illustration of his father God. That must have been just mind-blowing at the time. The woman in our parable was likely in a house that had no window and had rough ground for flooring. She loses one of her ten coins. Her coins each would have been very precious to her. So she lights a lamp and sweeps the house looking for it. And when she finds it, she she rejoices with her neighbours and friends that what had been lost 
had now been found. In the same way, Jesus tells his listeners, there's joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents and comes back to God. What are we to do with these stories today? I've got a few suggestions. Are we perhaps at times a bit like the Pharisees and the scribes? And I'm including myself in this. And I think a few of us may have done it even in the last few weeks as we've looked at someone like President Assad, or whatever his name is, or some of the people that are fighting in Syria. Have we thought their sin is too great that they could never be forgiven? I've certainly thought that and then realized I was wrong. If you've ever thought that, can I suggest you read this book by Philip Yancey? It is an incredible book. It's not a theological textbook, but it's, it's very easy to read, but it's amazing. What's so amazing about grace? He says this. Grace comes free of charge to people who don't deserve it, and I'm one. Another suggestion, do we think critically of the shepherd who left the 99 in the wilderness to go after one? What a silly shepherd. He could have lost the 99. And then we realize, actually, at one time, we were were the one that God left the 99 in the wilderness to come find. Have we, through life circumstances, wandered away and got lost alone like the lost sheep? If so, there is one who's out looking for us, faithful, earnestly looking for us to bring us back even now. Do we realize afresh this morning that we were once like the lost coin, not inanimate in physical terms, but spiritually dead in our sins before the Father came searching for us and rejoiced over us because we'd been found? Unlike the children of Israel, we don't live under the law received through Moses with the need for sacrifices to atone for our sins over and over again, but rather we live under grace because Christ did what Moses could never do, Christ made a once-for-all sacrifice on the cross that in some mysterious way paid the price for all our sin in full. And we have the promise in the familiar words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's our inheritance. Verse 17 goes on, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Unlike the ancient children of Israel, we don't have to live our lives striving to keep to a rule book. We only have to repent, turn back, and let ourselves be found and reconnected to a faithful, merciful, trustworthy, and loving Heavenly Father, who with outstretched arms is this morning running towards us, ready to receive us. Paul had it right. The ultimate connection we need is to God through Christ Jesus our Lord, a God who is love, and a God from whose love we can never then be separated. Thanks be to God. Let me close with Paul's words from the letter to the Romans at chapter 8. You're going to come up on screen now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present, the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, Father, who is also our mother, hear our prayers for ourselves and others. You created us, and therefore by instinct we call on you as to a parent, for whom else would grant such all-encompassing love and understanding. We pray for the lost of our world, lost in so many, many ways. We pray for the suffering lost people of Syria. This after a week in which we thought our troubled world was entering into another escalating war in that strife-torn land. To our astonishment, that particular crisis was averted. The political heads of our most powerful nations actually behaved like statesmen and reached a compromise. We pray that your wisdom and compassion may further inspire those politicians to find a solution for the sorrows of Syria. We pray for the millions of people lost to a fulfilling life all over our world by the forces of oppression and the materialistic greed of others. People lost to a meaningful place in our own consumerist society because of economic pressures which leave them workless and sometimes homeless. Their feelings of self-worth shattered so that they seek refuge in addictive practices which only harm them and their loved ones further people lost in a cycle of despair. We pray for people lost because they have fallen victim to the selfish desires of others who left them scarred emotionally and spiritually. To people lost because they perpetrated such hideous crimes and feel either no remorse or seek to hide from their offences. We pray for people lost because of unspoken, sometimes real, sometimes irrational fears which are equally potent. Fears over health, over finances, 
over loneliness, over the creeping darkness in their minds. For people lost because although they seek meaning and direction in their lives, they go astray because they have not yet heard of you and your Son and the righteous path of love. We pray for all these people, Lord, as we pray for ourselves. Because, make no mistake, somewhere in that list, we too may be found, our condition unknown to our friends, because we are putting on a false face. Let us not become complacent, because no matter how successful we seem, how healthy, how assured in our relationships with each other and seemingly with God, adversity can strike in an instant and the sure foundations of our world and faith tremble. Then all we say and think about our faith may appear to become meaningless platitudes. Some of us, no doubt, will say that in such a situation we would stand firm, confident in our salvation. But are any of us so assured we wish to be put to the test? We pray, Lord, that you speak to us in those dark moments of the soul and that all we have learned of you enables us to hear through the confusion and the pain and the doubts your small clear voice, and having heard, accept and move forward with your loving guidance. We pray to you, Lord, because we know you listen and understand and wait. Wait for us to accept and celebrate the healing, supportive, restorative power of your boundless love. Help us all, Lord, we pray, to realise despite our doubts and fears and sorrows and guilt that we cannot ever be truly lost, for you will always search us out and show us a way back if only we have the grace to accept that we are found and consent to receiving your guiding, compassionate, understanding love. Reassure us, Lord, when we become wearily cynical, influenced by the selfish ways of our world. Reassure us that you will never abandon us, no matter what we have done or have failed to do. Your judgment is not our judgment. Finally, Lord, we pray for those selfless souls who follow your example and go out into our dangerous world, disregarding the personal cost to seek and find and bring home the lost. We ask all this in the name of your blessed Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to trust in your love. Amen. Thank you very much.
knowledge that we've been found. Let's go out now and seek the lost, helping to bring them home.